This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. We'll be reading the first 21 verses. You also notice in your bulletin, there's a text listed there from Galatians. I'll actually read that one a little later. But for now, we'll read our primary text for this morning, which is Genesis chapter 21, the first 21 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. The water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot, for she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." This is the word of the Lord, and he blessed it in our hearing. You may be seated.
Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and minds to receive it. As we look at this chapter in our family history, the history of your people, of the children of Abraham, we would recognize in it not only the temporal realities of this division and separation between two sons, but the great spiritual reality that it represents, the separation of those who are your people and who are not your people, the city of God and the city of man. And that in this even we would see the hope of the gospel in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, sibling rivalry is nothing new. If you've ever been a child with siblings, or if you've had multiple children of your own, you have observed the phenomenon of sibling rivalry in action. Brothers and sisters can fight. They can struggle to get along. I have just one sibling, an older sister. She's a couple of years older than me, and she lives out in northern Idaho. Now, as siblings go, I don't know if you could have two more different people. For instance, I'm not a big fan of having pets. Heidi and I, we had a cat once, and we had to give them away because I went to seminary and they didn't allow pets, and we've never bothered with such things since. Whereas my sister is surrounded by animals all the time. She breeds dogs, so she has several German shepherds on hand at any given time. She has cats. She has goats, chickens, pigs, horses, all on her little 28-acre homestead plot out there in northern Idaho. It's even stressful for me to go out there. You know, she loves animals so much, and they're everywhere, and I'm just like, I don't even know what to do with all these animals around. I've always tended towards being shy and introverted, whereas my sister is a bit more outgoing. We don't actually look that much alike, so much so that when we were kids, she told me what many uh, siblings have told their other siblings, that I was adopted. And I actually started to believe her for a while. She tended to be a bit more rebellious. She would get into a bit more trouble, whereas I tended to be more compliant. Um, and on and on the differences go. And because of that, when we were kids, we would fight. We would sometimes not get along. Now, most of the sibling rival, rivalry that most of us deal with, it's rather silly. It's not that important. Despite our differences, we love each other and appreciate each other, or at least we do as we get older and a little more mature. But some sibling rivalries in history have much more grave and significant consequences. Back when monarchy was the predominant form of government in the world, sibling rivalries often turned deadly. You could have uh, different brothers vying for the same throne, and this would lead to wars, and this would lead to violence, and uh, siblings putting each other to death. We saw some time back in our study in the Gospel of John that at one point Jesus was rejected by his own siblings. And today in our study of Genesis, we come to another instance of sibling rivalry and sibling separation that will have major historical and societal and even spiritual implications and complications between these two sons of Abraham. 
And so we will look at this separation between these two sons today in three points. First, we see the promised son in verses 1 through 8. So we have Isaac. This is the son that has now repeatedly been promised to Abraham and Sarah, and he finally arrives. But then second, there is the purged son in verses 9 through 16. There is this matter of the son Ishmael who was already there and what happens to him. And third, we see the provision of God in verses 17 through 21. Though we see a rather tragic development in this separation, God's hand is at work in it. So again, we have the promised son, the purged son, and the provision of God. So first, we see the promised son in verses 1 through 8. So twice before this, Abraham and Sarah had been visited by God and heard the news that a son would be born to them. First, when God confirmed and ratified the covenant with Abraham with the sign of circumcision in chapter 17, he included the announcement that Abraham would have another son besides Ishmael who would carry forth the covenant promises. Remember that Ishmael was the son born of pragmatism. He was born back in chapter 16 out of a web of sin concocted by Sarah, then still known as Sarai, in which she did not trust God's promises for herself, so she gave her husband into the arms of another woman, her servant, Hagar. Hagar conceived Ishmael, and this led to a rivalry between Hagar and Sarah, and Sarah mistreating Hagar so badly that Hagar fled off into the wilderness rather than deal with the trouble any longer. Yet God met her in the wilderness and commanded her to return. And we don't hear any more about this rivalry until this chapter, chapter 21, that we are looking at today, where we find out that it still remains. But it is after this episode of Hagar and the birth of Ishmael that God visited Abraham in chapter 17 in that ratification of the covenant to promise that another son would be born. And then it was reiterated in Sarah's hearing in chapter 18 when God was on the way to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He stopped and visited Abraham and Sarah and told them that another son was on the way. Now this did not mean that Sarah was immediately accepting or believing that the promises would come to pass. That same pragmatism that caused her to give Hagar to Abraham, that same worldly thinking that made her think she was too old to have a son, caused her to laugh at this visitation by God in chapter 18 when she was told that she would have a son. But now in chapter 21, God delivers on his promises to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah conceives and bears a son, just as God had said would happen. And this son gets a name to commemorate the long, strange journey that Abraham and Sarah had been on towards having this son. His name was Isaac, which means laughter. So Sarah's statement in chapter 21, verses 6 and 7, is an acknowledgement of this when she says, God has made me laugh. It's sort of like her saying, I thought God was joking when he said that me, the old woman I am, would have a child but the joke was on me. And also, too, she says that all who hear will laugh with me. See, laughter isn't only something that happens in light of humor or irony. It can also be a sign of joy. 
Laughter is often portrayed as the opposite of weeping, the opposite of mourning. So when we are rejoicing, we often laugh. And though Sarah has been afflicted her whole life with barrenness, her and those with her now laugh at what was once a bitter providence. But she also expresses in verse 7 her awe and amazement at this providence of God. Who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne this, him a son in his old age. Who would have thought this old couple, Abraham and Sarah, him 100 years old, her 90 years old, themselves often struggling to believe God's promises, who would have thought that they would have had a son? Even when God visited Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision, Abraham thought then that Ishmael was the answer. When God visited later at the camp, Sarah laughed in God's face when he said that she would have a son. Well, who's laughing now? We see that when this son is born, this son of promise, this son of gracious provision, Abraham responds with the necessary and fitting obedience. In verse 4, Abraham circumcises Isaac on the eighth day of his life, just as he was required back in chapter 17, when he first received this promise that Isaac was coming. Isaac is the son of promise, the son of the covenant. And Abraham will do what has been commanded to raise this child according to God's precepts and laws, to raise him in the knowledge and worship of God. But we also see with the birth of this child, not just mere compliance as far as fulfilling the covenantal obligations, we see celebration. In verse 8, we see a feast. We see a celebration when the child is weaned, when he... Isaac is old enough to eat on his own, so this means some time passes, probably a couple of years. But it is clear that Isaac is the promised son, the privileged son, who will be the bearer of all the covenant blessings. But not everyone is happy about this. And this brings us to our second point. After the promised son, we come to the purged son in verses 9 through 16. We see in verse 9 that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, namely Ishmael, scoffing. He was mocking. He was disrespecting and deriding Isaac. Abraham is throwing this big party, honoring Isaac, having a feast. And Ishmael, who by this time is a teenager and had been Abraham's only son this whole time, he is jealous he doesn't like that little brother Isaac is getting all the love and care and attention. Now, some might be inclined to sympathize with Ishmael here. It would be pretty tough to be the older brother, and yet knowing that the best of everything would go to your younger brother. But this actually raises a more fundamental problem and a more fundamental question for Ishmael, one of faith in God's word. If God said that Isaac was the son of promise, then God's people believe God's word and act accordingly and rejoice in it. Here, God's word and provision has come to pass, but rather than rejoicing, Ishmael scoffs. Now, why is that? Because Ishmael does not belong to God and does not believe in God's word. He doesn't believe in the goodness and provision of God. Ishmael's loyalties and priorities are elsewhere. 
Now Sarah learns about this and she has a very strong reaction in verse 10. She says, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Now this is a challenging text here. Sarah is basically demanding that Hagar and Ishmael be exiled. The family bond between them and Abraham be dissolved. Now Abraham naturally is troubled by this. It is very displeasing in his sight, we read. But then in verse 12, God appears to Abraham and tells him to grant Sarah's requests. He approves of this putting out of Ishmael. Why? Because we see in Isaac will Abraham's seed be called. A great nation will still come from Ishmael, but Isaac is the carrier of the covenant promises. Isaac belongs to the city of God. Ishmael belongs to the city of man. But don't take my word for it. It is here that I'd like you to hold your place in Genesis. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. And I want to read it for you as it is very relevant to what we are seeing here. It is essentially the Apostle Paul commenting on what is happening here in Genesis 21. So Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So what Paul is explaining in this text is that what we see in Genesis 21, the separation between Isaac and Ishmael, is a division greater than a mere family dispute. We see in Galatians 4 that these two sons were born as they were, one to a bondwoman, a slave, and another to a free woman, Sarah, the beloved wife. And this distinction is further fleshed out in how one was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, the son of pragmatism and scheming, and the other born according to the promise, Isaac, by God's provision to Abraham and Sarah. And so this text, through Ishmael and Isaac, illustrates a great spiritual, theological, and covenantal reality. There are two peoples. There are two covenants. There are these two cities. There are the people of the world, those born in the first Adam, 
Born in sin and misery, they are born under the covenant of works, which Adam broke. So this covenant is no longer able to save anyone. Only the curse and condemnation of that covenant remains. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Now, as we confess in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, the law of this covenant was reproclaimed at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. The law is good. It is God's holy standards. Even for God's regenerate people, it is the rule of life. But no one is saved. No one is justified under the law. No one is saved through the covenant of works. No man by natural ability and achievement can save himself. Now, this doesn't stop unregenerate men from trying, from believing that they are righteous and believing they can find life and salvation apart from faith in the true God and the atonement he has made in Christ. So Ishmael was the son of natural ability, the son of the covenant of works, and he was doomed. He had no faith. He was no believer. God did not elect him unto salvation. He remained in Adam in sin and rebellion. And Ishmael was about to receive a new temporal reality to reflect the existing spiritual reality. What is happening to Ishmael and his being cast out is tantamount to excommunication. Ishmael has demonstrated by his scoffing of Isaac and by extension his scoffing of God's word and God's promises that he is not of God's people. And so he shall be removed from among them. But there is another way, another son, another covenant, and another life. That is life under the covenant of grace with Christ as mediator, those born of God, given this supernatural regeneration, this new life, and given justification by faith. This is life not in Adam, or life by the works of the law, but life in Christ, the second Adam. And Isaac is emblematic of that. So in Hagar and Sarah, or in Ishmael and Isaac, we see the definitive division of all of humanity, all of the redemptive history of the world. There are those who are sons of the bondwoman, sons of slavery, sons of the covenant of works, sons of sin and misery and death, those born in Adam who remain there. But there are sons of the free, sons of God, who are delivered from their sin and misery by grace through faith in Christ, according to God's promises. And so in casting out Ishmael from the camp of Abraham, God is working in time and space what is already true in the spiritual realm. Ishmael does not belong to the people of God, and he has no place there. Though he was visibly part for a time, we see that he has scoffed and mocked and derided God's word, even as it pertains to his brother. And so he will no longer share in any of the blessings of the covenant of grace. It's the sort of thing we see in Hebrews chapter 6. There are those who taste of the heavenly gift, the blessings of God. They hear the word for a time, but they fall away unto condemnation. Ishmael received earthly blessings. He'll continue to receive earthly blessings. He'll have many sons and he'll be a great nation. 
but they will be no more than earthly blessings because he is not of the city of God. He doesn't truly belong to God, and he never has. So having received this command from the Lord to cast out the bondwoman and her son, given through Sarah, but confirmed by the Lord, Abraham acts, starting in verse 14 of Genesis 21. He gives Ishmael and Hagar what they need to survive. He gives them bread and water so that they might live, but he does send them away. Now, humanly speaking, this could not have been easy to do. For Abraham, in whatever way he did, though the whole relation was conceived in sin and pragmatism, Abraham still would have had great love and concern for Hagar and Ishmael. But their place was not among the people of God, and so they depart. They go into the wilderness of Beersheba, further into the south. Before long, their water is used up, which in the wilderness is a deadly problem. Now, in a certain sense, this too reflects the spiritual reality of those who do not belong to the city of God. They are banished. They are sent away to death and hell. But as it pertains to earthly things, as it pertains to common grace, there will be provision for Ishmael. And this brings us to our final point. After the promised son and the purged son, we come to the provision from God in verses 17 through 21. Though God has promised no spiritual blessing or inheritance for Ishmael, he has promised him descendants and a great nation. Yet even this promise now seems threatened as Ishmael and Hagar suffer in the wilderness. They have no water. It seems that death is closing in. But God is faithful to his promises, even those that are limited to this temporal life. And so he appears to Hagar as he did once before in chapter 16. At this point, Hagar and Ishmael have separated for a distance because Hagar does not wish to see the boys suffering and death. And what we also see in this is that God never speaks directly to Ishmael. He always speaks through others. For Here he speaks through Hagar. This just shows us again how Ishmael is distant from God's word, and he is outside of God's people. But God does appear to Hagar and says that he has heard the voice of the lad where he is, and he commands Hagar to arise and hold him with her hand. And he says this because God is faithful to his promises. He says again, I will make him a great nation. Ishmael is going to have descendants. He will have a nation. In fact, many nations will come from him. But the terms will be different from the nation that comes from Isaac. Isaac's descendants will be part of the city of God. In fact, they will for centuries be the lone visible representation of the city of God on the earth. Whereas Ishmael's descendants and nations will belong to the city of man. They will be pagans. They will be separated from the true God and his word and worship. At least until Christ comes to call a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now God confirms this temporal promise with the provision of a well. God shows Hagar water so that they might drink and live, and they do live. We see that they live there in the wilderness, but that Ishmael becomes strong. He becomes an archer. 
Once again, as we've seen before in Genesis, we see power and civilizational development even among the city of man. We see that eventually Hagar finds Ishmael a wife from Egypt. He will be a people and a nation even if apart from the inheritance of God. Of course, we should not think of this as the happy ending or the preferred outcome of the story. Yes, Hagar and Ishmael survive. They don't die out there in the wilderness. But Ishmael and his descendants are lost. They are impoverished. They are hopeless in the most important of ways. They do not belong to God. They do not know or regard his will and worship. When Ishmael scoffed the son of promise, he scoffed God himself who promised and provided. He was more interested in himself and his ways and his inheritance than what God might have given him. So this text tells us both a joyous chapter of our family history, our history as God's people, the children of Abraham, and that we see the birth of the promised son of Abraham who carries forth the covenantal promises and blessings. In Isaac, we see the city of God, and in him all the promises to Abraham, which are promises to all of God's children. We also see again, as we have many times in Genesis, the division, the separation, and we see the close of a dark and sorrowful chapter of our family history, and that Ishmael was put away. Though he was visibly part of God's people for a time, his heart and his hope and his destiny were elsewhere. And so in these two sons, in these two cities, we see the hopes and the destinies of the entire human race. Everyone belongs to one of the two. Everyone is either a child of the bondwoman or a child of the free. The children of the bondwoman are those who live in the first Adam, those who seek salvation by their own works and ways apart from God, those who fall under the curse and condemnation of the broken covenant of works, and those who, wherever they might appear to be now, will eventually be told by God in the last day to depart, just as Ishmael was told to depart. Those face only God's wrath and condemnation. For just as Ishmael has despised Abraham's greater son, those who belong to the city of man have despised the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. For in him and him only is their salvation and forgiveness of sins and admission into the covenant of grace. Now the children of the free woman, the children of Sarah, the true spiritual children of Abraham are those who believe in God's word. Those who rejoice at the coming of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. For the covenant of works, once it was broken by Adam, could only bring death and condemnation and misery and doom. There had to be another way, another provision, another man, another Adam to do what the first did not. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature, took on the form of a humble servant, and he fulfilled all righteousness perfectly, keeping the law that no other person ever had, and suffering and dying to pay the penalty of sin that was due upon the children of Adam. 
In doing so, He made a way of salvation for those that were born under sin and under the curse of the law. But not everyone is a child of the free woman. Not everyone will receive the blessings of life and salvation. Only those who receive the illuminating and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit so that they might believe and receive and embrace Christ receive life and blessing. And so these promises of the gospel, they are offered to you once again this day. Perhaps the Spirit has opened your eyes and your heart to receive it, that you might become one of the children of Isaac, the children of Abraham, the children of God. The call of the gospel is to repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive Him, rest on Him, trust in His salvation, have the peace with God that comes in your justification, and you will be saved. That is the call of the Word today. Do not despise God's Word. Do not despise God's promises. Do not despise God's Son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Even as we have seen in it difficult things, we have seen a separation. We have seen an estrangement that exists between the two cities, the two lines, the two women and their sons. I pray that all who are here gathered today would be among your children and the children of Abraham, the children of promise, that by your Holy Spirit, you would work this gospel in the hearts and minds of all here and make it efficacious unto salvation. And I pray also that we would be salt and light into the world around us, taking this gospel to where it has not been heard. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.